what will COVID-19 mean for agriculture, our food supply systems, and our diets? Climate One conversations feature energy companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Devastated restaurants, unemployed and vulnerable food workers, risky trips to the grocery store. The coronavirus has disrupted every aspect of the food system. I'm no longer an employee of a really large food service company because I'm a COVID layoff myself. Colleen York was an executive at companies that run food operations on corporate and college campuses and currently teaches in the Food Business School at the Culinary Institute of America. She joins us to talk about the food and climate implications of the pandemic along with Lisa Held, senior reporter with Civil Eats, who covers the meat industry and other aspects of agriculture, and Karen Ross, secretary of the Department of Food and Agriculture and former chief of staff at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. First, a trip to the farm. Shea Myers calls himself a third-generation farm kid. His company, Owyhee Produce, grows onions and other crops on the Oregon-Idaho border. And like thousands of farmers, he was caught off guard by the drastic effects that COVID-19 had on his business. Climate One's Andrew Stelzer asked Myers to talk about what he's been through and how he's trying to adjust his business model for this new reality. As 2020 began, business was good at Oahe. Over the past few years, their customer base had been growing. And with 1,200 acres of onions, Shea Myers says everything was running pretty smoothly. In February and really March is when we started to feel it. With uh, COVID, the impact for us was initially a whole bunch of purchasing. A lot of people went to the grocery store and they wanted to stock up and an onion is one of those things that's not going to go bad like a banana in three or four days. And so in lieu of buying bananas, people were buying things like onions and potatoes and carrots and, you know, some of these hearty vegetables. And initially we saw a spike, 40% probably um, increase in total sales. Even though we lost 80% of our food service business, the retail side just picked up significantly. So our the month of March was very, very heavy sales, followed by some of the lowest sales that we've ever seen. I mean, like an 80% swing. We were only selling 20% of our normal volume. It'd have to be mid-March, mid to late March, when we finally decided that we were not going to have a home for some of our onions. We basically dug compost pits, you know, and brought an excavator in and started dumping those onions. Myers had to dump about 6 million pounds of onions, costing his operation about $800,000. Lucky for him, his other crops, like asparagus and sweet potatoes, don't rely on the restaurant business, and retail sales of those veggies hasn't taken much of a hit. Selling small, direct-to-consumers has actually thrived in the COVID era. Meyer says he and other area farms have been scrambling to adjust. The Farmers to Families Food Box Program by the USDA. I will say that program has worked, and that has gotten dollars to the farmers and supported, bolstered the market in a way that I didn't think that it would. And I also think there's some significant ramifications that are positive. How many people are now getting fresh produce at home that really never got it there before and weren't eating it before and didn't know how to cook with it before? There were a lot of my competitors here that sold only to restaurants or in a roundabout way, they sold to distributors that sold to restaurants or only sold to processors. Those are the two places that were most significantly impacted and therefore they had the most product that had to be disposed of. A typical onion is sold in a 50 pound bag, believe it or not. The other way to sell and the way that the consumption switched was to two, three and five pounds 
bags of onions. We grow in Idaho and Oregon and in California. In our California operation, we were planning on doing zero three pound bags, no consumer bags, none of that. And we ended up taking all of our equipment from Idaho, moving it to California and installing it there to be able to do those two, three and five pound bags. Looking ahead, Meyer says his big worry is next season. Despite an uncertain future, he had to plant his next crop of onions back in April. We look at restaurants and the closure rate. Some estimates are putting the closures of restaurants at 50%. Are we simply all going to visit the remaining restaurants more and therefore consumption the same? Or will we visit those restaurants the same as we always did and consumption will then be reduced? And it's going to take probably two years, I would argue, from the time that this uh, pandemic began before those numbers have resettled and the dust is settled and we can try and improve our practices. That was Shea Myers of Hawaii Produce on the Oregon and Idaho border. Karen Ross, a lot in there, just gut-wrenching, dumping six million pounds of onions, a lot of waste. Tell us the stories you recall going back to the early stages of COVID in March. I'd like to get your response to that. Sure. So the abruptness, you know, to shut down the economy, that abruptness is what really causes distribution challenge that we had. And Shay talked on several things. One is that with food service, few people realize that today, slightly more than 50% of our food dollars is spent out of the home. So it's at school cafeterias, campuses, conventions, hotels, and restaurants. And so when you think about 50% of the market immediately being shut down, that's a huge thing to try to absorb. And what he talked about is what we saw here in California. Um, if the product was one that could be repackaged, it was, but that requires equipment and people and training. If your whole business model is around the retail sales, you don't necessarily have people who could sell the food service and vice versa going from food service to immediately going into that retail type of setting. So that's what we saw in some of the instances of some of the food is that it was just trying to adjust as rapidly as we possibly can and trying to figure out, is this going to be worth it? Like they made a determination fairly early. It's worth it for us to bring the equipment from Idaho to California. But, you know, in a dairy, in one whole line is that packaging for school food lunches. And you don't know if those kids are still going to be able to get those lunches. Immediately, we didn't know if we were going to be able to distribute that. Those were the things that caused the disruptions, that caused those issues of having to plow under, turn into compost, or dump milk. But people quickly pivoted so we didn't have to continue that. And because we had an existing program in partnership with our California Association of Food Banks, we have a longstanding program, more than 15 years old, of farmers being able to call up the food bank and saying, I've got product and we've been able to do fresh produce in our food boxes in California over this long period of time. And when we have surplus, we've been able to send it through partners with Feeding America to get California produce to other places. So having the USDA program come in has been a wonderful thing because they're buying it at a market price where our state program is just helping to pay for the harvest. So we're, we're seeing that between the two programs, we've really been able to address the food waste issue in particular. I do have to say that the early calculations for financial losses to farmers are minimum of $2 billion um, and the, the total estimation could go as high as $8 billion for just the financial losses that have been absorbed. Helene York, your phone started ringing in March when the COVID crisis really started to unfold. Who called you and what did they want? 
Well, uh, I worked at the time with a national uh, contract food services company. That's the other half that Karen was referring to. We run the restaurants at corporations, um, others in the field at colleges, um, museums, and so forth. And um, what that means is we are providing food for employees of those companies. It is a really, really large sector of the restaurant industry. And we shut down 100 restaurants over the course of 10 days, um, which was enormous and more came. And um, so we had built over a 20 year period relationship with some of the smaller farmers and their cooperatives, um, especially in Northern California and Southern California, and they had become dependent, maybe, or another way of saying is they had a very good relationship with the chefs at our uh, restaurants that bought their produce. And this was March when the harvests were just beginning. I mean, the crops that were planted in January were just available and they were just about to sell. They had gone through sort of a two, three month period where they hadn't been selling that much because of the cold weather, they were gonna make their spring harvest dollars. And all of a sudden we were shut down. And so we uh, tried to work with uh, Feeding America, with Project Open Hand, um, with Chefs to Un End Hunger, uh, where we have a, a partnership really for prepared food. Um, so at the end of a, a lunch service, there's always some food left over. And so we donate it to uh, places that serve prepared food. But honestly, we couldn't satisfy the demand of the local farmers the way we could when the restaurants were open. We didn't have an unlimited supply of money to just buy things and donate them. And so we encouraged uh, a number of our managers who were still employed by our generous clients to set up community supported agriculture boxes. And that was a way to support the farmers, but they all had to pivot. They had to go from packing those 50 pounds of product that they would send to a contract restaurant or an independent restaurant. And now they have to put them in boxes. And you can't give local people a box of 10 pounds of onions. They can't afford it, they can't store it. You know, you have to then build a whole new process as some of these farmers did. And I applaud them, but it was tough going for a long time. Lisa Held, you've written about the local food revolution and how some small farms adapted and pivoted online, as well as food hubs that did a good job. Tell us about that reporting. Sure, so I, I think uh, you know, we've been reporting on how COVID-19 has affected the food system at Civili since the beginning and everything that Karen and Helene just said and everything Shay expressed really, you know, we've been talking to farmers all over the country who have had similar experiences. And um, in terms of these small uh, farms that sell into local and regional markets, it depends on where you are in the country and what you sell and a million factors. There's, there's certainly a lot of diversity, but one thing we definitely were seeing um, across the country is that farmers saw a lot of increased demand from uh, consumers who are home and wanted food at home um, direct to consumer. 
But the problem is, you know, you can't just pick up and bring them. <laughs> you need a, a, a marketing channel. So a lot of, and, and actually depending on where you were in the country, farmers markets, some of them shut down. Some of them stayed open and, um, you know, farmers were packaging things differently and doing no contact pickups. And, but it, it really just depended on where, where you are in the country. So a lot of farmers went totally online, which was, it's very effective, but requires extra labor, extra, you know, packaging. So just so much time, essentially creating a whole new business model um, at the time when you're transitioning into harvest season. So it was just a lot of um, adjusting and, and pivoting. And um, I mean, surprisingly, so many of these farms, though, got their, their CFAs online and, you know, had 300 person wait lists and are, you know, fulfilling all these online orders, um, doing at-home deliveries, doing uh, pickup sites. And, and really, it, in some ways, it seems like getting more of this local food to more families than they were before. Helene York, you said that some of the waste happened early, and that didn't have to happen or could have been different if the federal government had a different response. Well, it is well known that there was a uh, plan that the administration could have used to react to COVID um, that the administration didn't use. Um, and uh, certainly, um, we all know some very good public servants in the USDA. Um, and many of them had their hands tied. Um, uh, there could have been a lot more support for uh, uh, farmers of all different sizes uh, to really uh, pivot, help them pivot sooner and also to store a lot of their, whether it's grains or crops, um, store things in cold storage or frozen storage. There, was, there wasn't the coordinated effort while I agree with Shay that uh, the program that he has uh, been a part of has been uh, a godsend to a lot of uh, producers as well as a lot of consumers, uh, there could have been a 10 time uh, improvement uh, uh, effort um, on how we support eaters as well as producers that could have come from more focused planning from the USDA. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about COVID in the food system. Coming up, how food workers are often overlooked by OSHA and other government agencies. They've now issued four citations in response to almost 8,000 complaints. So that's a lot of um, worker complaints that are coming in and very little action in terms of what's being done to protect these workers. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about COVID in our food system with Karen Ross, Secretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture, Lisa Held, Senior Reporter with Civil Eats, and Helene York, Professor at the Food Business School of the Culinary Institute of America. Consumers often think about the impact of food on their body and maybe the environment, but workers who produce that nourishment often don't get the same attention. Gabriel Morales is Program Director at Brand Workers, an organization in New York City focused on empowering workers in the local, organic, and specialty food industry. He describes how workers preparing premium products are faring under COVID conditions. 
very specifically the workers that were organizing alongside uh, our artisanal bread makers. That's a group of workers that is at the factory at 5 a.m. It's an industry that's largely worked by black and brown uh, immigrant workers of, of color. There, there's about 55,000 food manufacturing workers in New York City right now. We're talking about 70, 80, 85% layoffs in some of these factories. And so the pandemic isn't the first emergency that these immigrant workers have been fighting. Like workers have for years been fighting systemic inequality through lower wages, through outright wage theft. Uh, they, they face higher rates of injury. They face more reported instances of sexual discrimination and sexual harassment. Uh, and the devastating effects of U.S. immigration policy, uh, which under the Trump administration has worked diligently to break up families and break up immigrant communities. And so the coronavirus has really magnified those problems. And the results have been absolutely devastating to immigrant communities. And those workers, they were excluded from the stimulus package from earlier in the year. And so we've had to come together as um, a immigrant rights community across New York City and across the country to fight for policies that help bring those workers into some to give those workers the, some of the help that they desperately need. Are there examples of companies that have risen to the moment that have done the things you've, you're asking for, you know, four weeks of paid sick leave, you know, pandemic pay or hazard premium, uh, protection from retaliation against workers who raise health concerns? Are there, are there some examples of companies that have really risen to the moment? There are companies that have risen to essentially a bare minimum. Um, but in terms of like what brand workers is actually looking for, uh, for work, workers, which is being able to have the power to, to have a voice on their own job and to talk about the things that they want, no, no companies have risen to this moment. We want for people to know what it is that you can do both to plan before and after campaigning that workers can do both before and after an emergency hits. Like people need support for mental health and trauma. People need um, to understand like what are, how to build infrastructure in immigrant communities. And then importantly, how do you help communities raise funds to, to help mitigate some of the worst uh, outcomes of people being unemployed for who knows how long people are going to be unemployed. And so we, we want to help organizations do that work. Uh, and, and so we are helping to train organizations and to train individual community members to prepare themselves for emergencies like COVID-19. Gabriel Morales with Brand Workers, thanks for sharing your insights on Climate One. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. Karen Ross, a lot in there about workers in that one region, that part of the food chain. We have an American food system that's built on low cost, really kind of on the backs of workers that aren't paid very much. Your thoughts on what you heard? Yeah, so efficiency and just-in-time delivery is really driving a lot of what the current system is about. 
Um, and it's taken a while to really raise these kinds of equity issues, but now they are front and center. Um, obviously, the, the day from day one, the concern about our essential workforce, because agriculture is part of the critical infrastructure, um, there were things to work through, like just the list of which which jobs are all jobs, you know, essential. And then the conflicting messaging that were coming out, like the Bay Area was the first one to do such a complete shutdown. Well, we had workers who were going to dairy processing plants or food processing plants that were being stopped. And you can imagine you're going into the swing shift or the late night shift at one of those lines and you get stopped by local law enforcement and you don't know what you're being stopped for. That's a heart chilling um, experience. And then that creates the fear factor throughout the community. So it took, you know, a good week to 10 days to make sure we had everybody equipped with cards to say, I'm going to my job at X, I'm essential worker, just ironing out those kinds of things. But then we knew that if this continues, when we get the surge of seasonal work that has to happen, where farm workers will be moving around more. And when we started to talk about reopening the economy, the concern about how do we keep everybody safe so that we don't have a cycle that we're seeing right now? You're coming into work and are you being exposed there and taking it home where you might be in a congested uh, house situation or your culture is that you have multi-generations living in the same household? How do we prevent it either coming into the workplace or from the workplace going home and the broader community spread and our rural communities? We're about family. We have social gatherings. We have birthday parties. We have Sunday afternoon barbecues. And how do you tell people Family is everything, love them from a distance. And that's, you know, some of that messaging just has not been complete or it hasn't been culturally appropriate and really sensitive to the norms of how we live and work in rural communities. Those are still lingering issues and that's part of the strike force that the governor announced for the Central Valley. We have high numbers in the Central Valley. It's coinciding with big harvest and big cultivation activities and uh, opening up of food processing plants. So we're going to be partnering and in the valley in a very strong way to see what we can do to rebend the curve back down to where it needs to be. Lisa Held, you've covered the outbreaks in the meatpacking factories, which seem to have uh, stabilized, at least as far as we know. What are some of the other big questions now protecting the workers who provide food to us? You know, Gabriel said something that that really stuck with me, which is, you know, these issues were already there and the pandemic really shed light on them, which, you know, exploitative practices um, re with regards to workers, especially in meatpacking plants, is causing these outbreaks to be much worse than they need to be. And companies have been really slow to react. So, for example, um, fast, really fast line speeds in meatpacking plants that are dangerous for workers in other ways also mean that thousands of employees are crowded together and cannot possibly socially distance. Um, and, you know, low wages, lack of benefits, as cases were increasing, instead of guaranteeing paid sick leave, companies were offering bonuses to employees uh, to not miss a day of work, which obviously provides an incentive for them to come in sick, especially when you don't have um, an income that can support you. Um, and it was clear very quickly that big companies like Tyson and Smithfield and JBS were not doing a lot to institute protective measures until after major outbreaks had occurred. And, you know, there was that period, I, I want to say it was like April, May, where a lot of meatpacking plants were shutting down and there were all these hogs that had nowhere to go. And 
and it felt like this real breakdown. And and like you said, it does feel like that has stabilized. But I want to be clear that um, people are still getting sick. And, you know, the, the latest numbers from the Food and Environment Reporting Network um, on meatpacking workers, uh, 38,000 cases estimated and 171 deaths um, around the country. And those numbers are, are still increasing. And we talked about the USDA earlier. And uh, I reported a story on a different agency, OSHA, and um, they're the federal agency tasked with protecting workers on the job. And um, this was in mid-June, but uh, not much has changed. You know, they've issued voluntary guidance for employers and, and in response to worker complaints about not, not being provided with PPE, not uh, being able to socially distance. Um, in the majority of cases, the agency is just advising businesses of that guidance rather than doing on-site inspections. And, you know, when I did my story, they had issued one citation in response to more than 5,000 complaints. And they just released numbers last week that they've now issued four citations in response to almost 8,000 complaints. So that's a lot of um, worker complaints that are coming in and very little um, action in terms of what's being done to protect these workers. Helene York, you've actually toured a lot of meat processing plants. A lot of people can't get into them. They're shrouded in secrecy, but you've gone in there many times as part of your due diligence, looking at the supply chains for food that goes into colleges and corporate campuses. Uh, take us inside these meat processing plants and what's it like and what kind of accommodations have been made for workers during COVID times? Yeah, I've been to more uh, meat processing plants than I care to admit. Um, I don't even eat meat, but uh, I, I have looked at them uh, in many different states in the United States and several countries outside the U.S. And there are some real commonalities. Um, immigrants, wherever um, the facility is located. If it's in the United States, they're mostly Mexican some from Central America, different parts of the country, African-American, not immigrants, but underrepresented minorities. When you go to other places around the world, it's also immigrants. Um, I can say there have been some very good things that have surprised me at a lot of these facilities, um, but they are more about the health of the animals than they are about the health of uh, the people who are working there. Um, in order to, I was in North Carolina a couple of years ago, and in order to see a hog plant, I had to take a shower. I had to leave all my clothes behind. They gave me clothes. They gave me full, like, spacesuits. I mean, it was way beyond PPE. Um, the uh, workers, um, and this has been true in all the plants that I've seen, often wear basic PPE, but they're very close to each other. Uh, what I think is missed by accounts about how these plants work is all of the people stuff. So you can stand next to each other, you can work quickly. You're basically in a huge refrigerator, right? It's 38 degrees typically when an animal's been slaughtered and then you have to cut it up because you have to maintain the safety of the meat supply. But then workers have breaks and um, they have lunch and they put their personal items in lockers that are like high school, only smaller, 
right? They're tiny little lockers for a lunchbox. And so even if you accept what the companies are saying, that we're giving PPE to workers and we're slowing down the lines, and we may even put some plexiglass between workers, what are they doing to help the workers when they take a break, when they have lunch, when they go home? I don't see it. I, I have I have seen people interact. It's the only time of the day when they can interact with other human beings because they can't pay attention to other humans when they're quickly processing chicken or pork or anything else. If you're just joining us, we're talking about COVID and climate and the American food system. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Lisa Held, senior reporter with Civil Eats, Karen Ross, secretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture, and Helene York, professor at the Food Business School at the Culinary Institute of America. We're going to go now to our lightning round. First for Helene York, have you gained or lost weight hunkering down during COVID? I have lost weight. I Instead of commuting, I walk. Wow, I hear so many people who've gained weight, including myself. Most people I hear are gaining weight. Uh, Lisa Held, number of plastic bags you have carried out of a grocery store in the past couple of weeks? Uh, zero. <laughs> Great. Congratulations. Karen Ross, the number of plastic forks you have used in the last couple of weeks? Oh, I don't use that. Zero. Wow. Helene York, your favorite fruit? Tomato especially now. Karen Ross, your favorite vegetable? Whoa. Well, asparagus. I love asparagus. Lisa Held, your favorite food writer? Oh my gosh. Um, not yourself. <laughs> I know, I'm not going to choose myself. Um, I'll say someone I'm really enjoying right now, um, Alicia Kennedy. She's incredible. Karen Ross, the least favorite meal made in your home when you were growing up? No, I'm from a farm in Western Nebraska, so overcooked broccoli still haunts me to this day. <laughs> Lisa Held, your favorite dish made in your home growing up? Uh, chicken parmesan. Helene York, a food that you think should get more respect in America's kitchens? Anchovies, hands down. This is association. I'll mention something and the first thing that comes to your mind, one word or phrase off the top of your mind with reckless abandon, unfiltered. Karen Ross, what comes to mind when I mention Senator Cory Booker's bill proposing an 18-month moratorium on large agricultural mergers? I think it has a hard road to hoe. Size contributes to efficiency, and those are the trade-offs we have to make for affordability. Just got to say it. Sorry. <laughs> Lisa Held, what comes to mind when I mention services that deliver meal kits to people's homes, such as Blue Apron? Wasteful. I subscribed to one once and the waste was horrifying. Helene York, what comes top of mind when I say organic food? Affluent food. Affluent food? It's very expensive and there are a lot of producers who really support regenerative agriculture and biodiversity in the soil who refuse to be a part of the organic system. This is true or false for each of you, true or false. Karen Ross, American consumers deserve to have more visibility into where their meat is processed. Sure. Helene York, true or false. Google and other tech giants have a disturbing amount of power over our lives and economy. 
not when it comes to their food programs, that's a good influence. We'll come back to that. Uh, last one, true or false. Lisa held, GMOs are safe for humans to eat. True, but I don't think that's the issue. <laughs> good job getting through the lightning round. Yeah, and GMOs, there's a question of concentration of power that's separate from human health. I do want to talk about the climate aspect of this, which we haven't really gotten to a lot yet. This is Climate One. This Lisa reported recently on a story that the head of commodities at Goldman Sachs, Jeff Curry, Tyson's stock was around 80. Before COVID, it touched 50. Now it's trading about 60, down 30% relative to the S&P for the year, which is about flat. Uh, so the question of livestock, Helene York, do you think people are giving plant-based burgers more of a uh, consideration these days? There could be some shift away from meat, which we know has a big contribution to greenhouse gases. Oh, we know that people are really looking at plant-based meat and also uh, cell-based meat um, and hybrids. Um, there was a report that was just uh, published looking at the number of Americans who had eaten uh, one of these alternatives for the first time uh, over the past uh, four months. And it's, it's shot up, as you can see from the sales. And most people are saying that they'll have it again. Uh, they'll have it again because they like the taste, uh, because uh, they like the texture, and most importantly, because they feel that it's healthier for them. And the climate argument is general in food is generally one with the health promotion, uh, because that's where most consumers are, and um, we just consume too much meat, especially in the United States. And um, there's nothing wrong with incorporating meat as part of your diet. It just shouldn't be nine ounces a day. And we have built a food system to accommodate that particular form of protein as opposed to plant proteins. And um, I'm looking forward to more of a balance uh, in what we grow um, and in consumer acceptance. Um, and I think um, we are seeing, certainly in the 15 years I've been actively involved in this issue, we have seen a really big shift in interest, particularly, let's say, college-age students. Um, you know, 15 years ago, they couldn't give a hoot about, first of all, the idea of food system contributing to climate change what are you talking about? You know, deer in the headlights. But um, now it is very much on the minds of students and it is m very much on the minds of recent grads. And you can see that in many ways. I just hope we get there fast enough. You're listening to a conversation about COVID and the American food system. This is Climate One. Coming up, looking beyond the pandemic. Shame on us if we don't have two things at the center of economic recovery that will both make us better than we were. One is equity, and two, how do we think about climate, which is tied to health, which is tied to equity. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about COVID and food with Karen Ross, Secretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture, Helene York, Professor of the Food Business School of the Culinary Institute of America, and Lisa Held, Senior Reporter with Civil Eats. 
With students staying home, school lunch programs have been devastated by the pandemic. Lisa reports on how school lunches ripple through the food system. You know, a lot of these um, school districts just very quickly pivoted to doing um, takeout, takeout, that seems weird when you talk about school meals, um, delivery and pickup meals. And um, and the USDA, we, we talked earlier, they actually, they approved a lot of waivers to make it possible for districts to do that very quickly. And, you know, 23 million students in this country depend on free and reduced price lunches. So, you know, those were a lot of students that districts were were making sure that they, they had food. The, the big problem is that they're not able to um, reach as nearly as many students, even if they're, they're working around the clock. So, you know, one school I, I talked to and uh, met the Metro Nashville Public Schools, at, when they were doing the, the highest number of meals, they were producing about 10,000 a day, which sounds like a lot, and it is, but on a normal school day, they produce 82,000 meals. So um, the meal programs are one of the biggest uh, sources of revenue is reimbursements from the federal government and it's per meal. So they just are seeing this massive, massive decline in revenue and their costs have stayed the same because they're trying to keep staff on or went up because they're trying to um, get PPE for their employees, uh, you know, hire drivers. There's a lot of extra labor. And so they're really struggling financially. Um, and one of the things that this whole situation has revived is this call from advocacy groups for universal school meals, um, because we're now that we're starting the next uh, school year, there's going to be this process of essentially determining which students are eligible for free and reduced price meals. And that is a huge, huge challenge for districts and making them do that at a time when um, they are struggling so much financially and it's still a, we're still in a pandemic. Uh, a lot of groups say that that's just, it's just not possible. And a lot of uh, school nutrition directors I've talked to have talked about the challenges. The House Democrats introduced a bill for universal school meals for next year that would essentially take that burden off of the schools. Uh, it's unlikely to go anywhere, but um, it's introduced. Helene York? I, I think it's really important to realize that the U.S. school lunch program is the biggest hunger relief program in the country. I mean, whether it's 23 million or 30 million, I've seen some numbers, but, um, it, you know, we are five, whatever, depending on your perspective, four months, six months into this pandemic uh, in the United States, and um, we're likely to have this go on for another 12 or more months. Hunger is going to become a real issue. It is now. It is going to grow. And likely having children get food from the uh, school lunch program could be the biggest thing we do uh, to prevent horrific poverty and hunger uh, in this country. We've seen a lot of restaurants, small businesses go away. Maybe they'll get some support in the next round of federal funding. But it's also possible this could lead to further consolidation. You work with food service companies operating at corporate campuses and colleges. They could go away or shrink if people aren't going to college, they're not going to the office. Those companies were large, powerful forces for incremental change, better respect for the environment, purchasing practices, et cetera. How could the power dynamics change in the food system as a result of COVID? 
Well, I think we're already beginning to see business consolidation accelerate. I mean, this has been going on for 50 years. Um, I, I would say that, uh, you know, one of the things, whether you consider this good or bad, I'm, I'm mixed about this, um, but a lot of innovative companies are bought by a lot of the big companies uh, to bring uh, either resilience has not been the goal, but it may be now, um, uh, but to bring new ideas, new markets, uh, new uh, consumers to these mainline companies, the big CPG companies. Um, I do, I, I, I'm going to predicate everything by saying that it really depends on how long this lasts because companies will stay in business if they have the cash to stay in business. And you hear that over and over and over again. It's all about the cash and how you're using the cash. And unfortunately, that leads to a lot of layoffs, but it also leads, to, if you manage your money well, you have a higher stock price. If you're a public company, you have fewer employees. I mean, it's a bad cycle. Um, but a lot of what I'm seeing is that there is still interest among entrepreneurs and among the many different firms that have started um, investing in food businesses. I mean, it's really been the last 10, 12 years where we've had a lot of these uh, different early stage entrepreneur capital funds. And some of them are very, very creative. And they're using this time to refuel, to rethink, to, uh, create better direct-to-consumer strategies. Um, and they're uh, pivoting to supermarkets um, because uh, as one channel instead of food service. Um, so I think that's all good. But of course, I'm no longer an employee of a really large food service company because I'm a COVID uh, uh, layoff myself. Um, I do think, though, that uh, and this gets back to a question, what can consumers do? I think it's actually really hard to know about the companies and their practices. You can know to some degree, but as Gabriel uh, pointed out in the, in the video, you know, he's representing workers at artisan bread manufacturers, you know, which have this halo of local sustainable organic but they're not great necessarily to their employees. Some are brilliant, some are not. How do you know? You can't know that about all of your food. But if you're buying food through a supermarket channel and that supermarket is a public company, then I think you need to use your shareholder activism, put that hat on and really press those companies to, to show that they are buying from companies that are ethical, environmentally responsible, fair, humane, all of the attributes, um, and there are others, certainly climate friendly, um, that we want to promote. We have a question from listener Ann Chadwick. Can we use this crisis to rebuild in a more climate smart way? Karen Ross, I know from people in Governor Newsom's office, they're really concerned that this coronavirus is pushing aside all other priorities the governor had for the state of California. Can we use this crisis to rebuild in a more climate smart way? Well, now that we're working 28 hours a day on COVID, we do have time. For, I mean, that's what it feels like some days. But we have not lost our, our focus on climate. 
Obviously, um, the decline in funds from the cap and trade auction will have an impact on a lot of our incentive programs. And so we're already meeting with financial wizards and many others to really think through how else do we continue the momentum that we have. Here in California, we use cap and trade auction proceeds to fund our climate smart agricultural programs. Over $600 million in the last five years have been invested in helping transition agriculture to part of our carbon neutrality goal. And we've done that throughout the economy. How do we sustain that momentum? Where do we leverage federal partnerships? Where are we creating new partnerships, especially in the marketplace where buyers are now thinking in a more holistic, sustainable way? What's my long-term sourcing, regardless of whether I'm buying it here in the United States or overseas, really understanding that and helping to put more emphasis into things like healthy soils, our water footprint, how we're using nitrogen fertilizers, um, how we're helping to generate renewable energy, um, the, the food processing energy efficiency programs that we've funded the last couple of years. Um, and so shame on us if we don't have two things at the center of economic recovery that will both make us better than we were. One is equity because the spotlight on essential workers and the pockets of poverty throughout the country that are just being exacerbated in the spotlight, um, in part because of the, of the focus on racism and systemic racism that's now happening while we are also at home with COVID. And two, with a climate lens, how do we invest in economic recovery and think about climate, which is tied to health, which is tied to equity, um, so that wherever the investments happen, wherever recovery dollars happen, wherever stimulus dollars happen, we're all thinking in a very integrated, holistic way around rebuilding and rebuilding better. And I believe agriculture and our food systems have to be a part of leading that, ag in particular, because we're already feeling the effects of climate change. If we really care about food security with a growing population, we have to be leading the charge on climate change climate smart agriculture, investing in healthy soils, and sequestration on our farms and forests to help solve this urgent, urgent problem. So as we wrap up, I want to look forward a bit. Uh, Lisa Held, what is something you'd like to see in our food system? We've talked about the PRIME Act, things that government could do to be good for the climate and our food system in this election year. Lisa Held, what are some things that will be good for the climate and our food system? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... In terms of climate, there are some, there's definitely been some movement in terms of um, people in power talking more about climate. And, you know, the House just released this really big um, pro proposal around, around climate and agriculture is a huge part of it. And I think it's encouraging just to see politicians and elected officials paying attention to these issues. Um, I, I'm not sure how much of, of that proposal will become reality. And um, that kind of remains to be seen at this point. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think things are shifting a little bit. And, and I, I think the, the one positive about uh, this, how much COVID-19 has impacted the food system is, it's hard to say positive. It still feels like terrible to say that, but I guess a, a silver lining a little bit is that we're just talking more about how food is produced and what it looks like and who's affected and who's involved and 
all the factors. And though I think just having those conversations related to COVID are going to lead to more deeper sort of conversations about the connection between food production and the environment. Karen Ross, you were in the U.S. Department of Agriculture coming out of the Great Recession and have seen the system rebound when the economy comes out of a terrible collapse. Your thoughts on this time around? Well, um, that led to a lot of consolidation, and this one will lead to a lot of consolidation. Um, And that's just a a sad fact of life. Um, As much as we want many, many, many small farmers, it's hard work, it's capital intensive. And when markets get disrupted, if you're not able to pivot, it's hard to have the capital to keep going. That's one of the things that I worry about on the farmer side. And that doesn't even count the mental health issues. Farming is a somewhat solitary business. You're outside, you're outdoors. Um, You like being somewhat independent and you want to be the strong image of what a farmer working the land is and the mental health issues and the stress. And you add disrupted markets, uh, commodity prices that aren't paying for your cost of production. Am I even going to break even this year? And then you have a workforce that you don't have a business if you don't have a healthy workforce and there's costs. We've already talked about some of the adaptations that have to happen. So I worry about what that does um, to family to family life going forward. Um, but I do want to say if there's one economic stimulus that's one of the most important ones, it's SNAP benefits and increasing SNAP benefits. That is economic stimulus in the local economy. That's helping people. You know, I'd love for them to eat healthier with those SNAP dollars that they have. But that is the one thing that helps farmers and it helps people who, at no fault of their own, may be unemployed for a while. It, it's self-regulating as people go back to work. They don't need those SNAP benefits. Not paying attention to what Congress is or is not doing to make sure people can buy food for themselves and their families, especially our vulnerable populations, is something that we all should really wake up and make sure our voices are heard on that. You've been listening to a Climate One conversation about COVID and the future of our food system with Karen Ross, Secretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture, Lisa Held, Senior Reporter with Civil Eats, and Helene York, Professor at the Food Business School of the Culinary Institute of America. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>